Hi, this is Wade with Let the Bird Fly. We are here in my office, uh, the closest thing we have to a studio, and we are recording today on Christmas. Lord willing, if this gets produced in time, which will be on me and Peter, it will get dropped on the 23rd, so if you're traveling Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, you should be able to listen along. We have two guests in with us. They both should be somewhat familiar voices. They've each been on at least once before. I'll let them introduce themselves briefly to us, but we had them on to, to be able to talk about Christmas with us, and I think we should have an interesting discussion where, uh, as a backdrop for that, we don't have to have everything relate to it, but we have read uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation, or at least we're pretending we've read it, um, C.S. Lewis, Introduction to It, and then also a Luther Sermon on Christmas, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it, we're going to talk Christmas in general, and Paul, why don't you go ahead and briefly introduce yourself first? Yeah, I'm Paul Leininger. I teach theology here at Wisconsin Lutheran College, mainly doctrine courses. And I'm married to Jean. We have one daughter, Annie, and two grandchildren. And that's a big deal for us, so that's wonderful. Awesome. And Greg? I'm Greg Lyon. I've been campus pastor at Wisconsin Lutheran College for, this is my fourth school year now. Um, Also married, three kids, so Christmas is a very exciting time in our (laughs) house with the little kids. Do you, is Santa coming or do you not do Santa? Uh, my kids are past Santa, believe it or not. Wow. They're, so they're, they're yeah, over yeah, it. That. So um, the Tooth Fairy is what ruined it for them. Then they figured out Santa Claus. Uh, they worked backwards from that. Yep. You're kidding. The Tooth Fairy isn't real. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> the, uh, I think we'll make our way then, without further ado, to the disclaimer. And Mike, would you mind covering that for us? This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in. brings us to our scripture narrative. We are going to do one of those today. It's been a little while with topics shifting. And uh, Mike confirmed, I do have a real Bible, an actual Bible in front of me for reading from this. And this is going to be from the English Standard Version. We're going to read Luke 2, uh, Luke 2 verses 1 through 15. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Uh, This is the Christmas Gospel, and I guess I'll toss it out to anybody, but maybe, Mike, you have any thoughts you want to get us started with? Yeah, uh, for Luke chapter 2, you know, I'm thinking apologetically always when I think about Luke 1 and 2, and this is a real person that was born in a real place in a real time. And if this was a made-up story, and, uh, well, let's just put it this way, if you were making up a story, you probably wouldn't put details in there like Luke does, right? And so Luke is playing historian here being an historian here we should say and giving I thought you said a nestorian for a second. <laughs> and, and give, we'll get to that later better, and yeah. giving details that are not really necessary if this is just a myth if this is just a nice story that you can tell your children um, before they go to bed if it's just um, a story that kind of sort of organizes our life, inspires us to uh, reach enlightenment, or uh, this is going to be a story about a, a great teacher who is going to uh, give us some moral code, and it doesn't really matter that much if he actually said these things or did these things or was born in Bethlehem or it was during the time of Quirinius being the governor of Syria. Those those things you wouldn't put in. It wouldn't be part of your your telus, your your goal, your 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 ultimate end and purpose. And um, so there is the accusation that this is a myth, this Christian gospel. And we can point to these little details and say, well, this is pretty accurate here, you know. And it, it, it it's one avenue of pushing against that false accusation. Now, for us personally, that means. It actually happened, and that is very good news for us because the ultimate goal of Christ was to give us the forgiveness of sins, to reconcile us with the Father. So that's my always first, just because I'm kind of steeped into apologetics, that's my first kind of reaction when I think uh, of Luke chapter 2. But Gregory, what do you, what do you have in store for us? Um, I think the thing that always strikes me about Luke 2 is how little time is actually devoted to the actual birth. Not that you're going to go through all the details, but you got all of history waiting up for this moment. And there's one verse that says, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, she had a baby. And, and it's so nonchalant. And, and I, when I went through this in theology class, I, I told the students, too, this is so Jesus to be so... Um, not have this grand detailed story, everything leading up to it and everything after it, but the actual birth, it's almost passed over. Um, But for such a a thing that changed the entire eternity, um, you'd almost want more details on on the birth itself, what happened. Yeah, and those details, each of those details, of course, 
we could preach on one sentence, you know, all of us could uh, just think about when God comes to earth, it shakes. So Caesar Augustus is moved to uh, issue this decree right at the right time. Um, we we um, judge time or count time BC and AD. Um, the whole world changes, and then the juxtaposition, of course, that it was such a lowly birth, right? I mean, you can pull that stuff out, but you're right; it's just it's just there. It's there for us to then tease out a little bit. And uh, but you're right; just the juxtaposition between just this simple birth that literally, even if you're not a Christian, you understand that this person changed the world in very profound ways. Paul, well, on the details thing is interesting to me because the pseudepigrapha, you know, they have all these other things they added to the story of Jesus' birth. And the traditional icon of the incarnation in the East, you have the midwife with the withered hand because she touched the Virgin Mary in the wrong place and, you know, all that sort of thing is going on because people, you know, details, details, but actually we can be thankful that the story is as simple as it is because it makes us concentrate on what the most important aspect of it. There was it can be like Mary pondering these things, yeah, right? Exactly. There was in, it was interesting again this year. You always get reports like this, and I, I think they can be helpful and, and interesting. But there was one about uh, you know Jesus wasn't necessarily born in a barn or in a stable, and it was talking about how the houses in this area might have been constructed, and you would still have an enclosed house with the animals inside that they might have been staying in. And it's it, it's inter- interesting to see how people react to some of these things. Sometimes they react very. Uh, they're very upset because, you know, th- this is not how I've pictured the nativity scene or how the manger scene has been, um, you know, depicted at my house or at my church or wherever they might, the local mall, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago. But uh, I think one of the interesting things, too, to piggyback off that with the lack of detail with some of the things, and, and I not necessarily specifically just the birth, but the trappings around it, is that uh, I think like the scriptures themselves, themselves that Christianity is very translatable. It can easily go across cultures. Unlike many religions, it's not bound to a language or a culture. And so, you know, about the least Christian thing you could do would be to knock over a, a nativity scene because you thought the details didn't quite match, you know, exactly how you picture things. But that we're able to see in this historical thing, as Mike emphasized, we're able to see our Savior who is for us. It's the same as, you know, if in mission work, Jesus is often pictured like the people in that area. Well, that's not something that I find to be troubling, very, you know, upsetting, because we recognize there was a historical Jesus, but he's also the one who put on a human face to save all. And so I think that's part of the attraction of the Christmas season also is that it's so easily culturally appropriated in a good way um, that, you know, that there's some leeway in there that has afforded, I think, great opportunities for the development of scenes and customs that that draw attention to uh, Christmas itself. And then the other thing that stands out to me as I read it again this time would be how God is just want to use means. Um, why Why is Christ born in Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy? Well, Mary and Joseph went there for a census. Uh, you know, he, God works through all these things to bring his child at the right time in the right place, but it's not as if um, the angel comes to Mary and says, here's the 10 steps you got to do, and then I'm going to fulfill things. But he works through the things as they are. 
which can be very frustrating for us oftentimes because we want to know exactly what's going to happen, when and how. Um, but we have promises that have, uh, you know, sometimes not as much detail of, as how they'll come to be as also we know with Bethlehem. There's no laid out in the Old Testament of, well, there will be a census and then they'll come and they'll stay and there will be no room in the inn. Um, but that same God is the God who through means keeps his promises with us. Well, and that goes back a little bit to what you were saying, Mike, about how, you know, this is a real time, a real place, and so on. And we sometimes clean it up a little bit, like, you know, Mary and Joseph find out about the census, and they say, oh, good, we get to go so the Savior can be born, you know. No, I'm, I can imagine Joseph saying, oh, for heaven's sake, we have to go all the way to Bethlehem and do this, you know, what's wrong with this culture we live in, you know. It's, yeah, my wife is this much pregnant, yeah, and I have to. exactly. It, you know, it is interesting, too. We, we often picture them alone there. And one of the things that this article, or no, it was uh, um, how we misread scripture through Western eyes, that whatever book I was telling you about, Mike, that I was reading, it talked about too, you know, God may also well have provided for Mary and Joseph through this census because who all is going to Bethlehem? They're relatives. And, you know, so there may have been people there to actually help care for them. Uh, you know, Mary and Joseph might have even said, Okay, the census is coming, traveling with Mary, pregnant, not great. But, you know, when we get there, uh, maybe, you know, Grandma or Aunt Betty or I don't, Betty, I don't think is that. That's why the icon is nice, because there are people around there. Yeah, you know? yeah we picture it as this isolated event, and, and it's not necessarily the case that, you know, they had no one to, to help with this. Uh, it is interesting, too, you know, Greg, you mentioned, and we, we shouldn't go too long in this section, but, you know, there aren't as many details as there could be, although there's lots of historic... I mean, Luke really holds the historical markers out there. This is So we can date this um, to, a, I mean, to a certain degree. But, uh, you know, it's interesting which Gospels do choose to include this too and some that just move right past. So, you know, John is going to start really echoing Genesis 1 and 2 um, rather than with the, the strictly speaking Christmas account, like we think of it with Luke. Mark is going to get right into his ministry, and then, you know, Matthew will have his own details that he wants to look at. But it is interesting also how each of them see this account, and, um, you know, it's not like the resurrection that's going to appear in all four Gospels. And yet I would say, and this is maybe something for us to unpack in the main episode later, that in most cultures where Christianity has spread, it's probably come become the main festival um, of Christianity in that culture. Now, I don't mean the main festival as in people going to church for it, um, because I think, especially in American Christianity, sadly, Christmas Day has become pretty neglected. Uh, you know, you hear people say, well, Christmas Day is for family. Um, Christmas Eve, I think, is pretty well attended in our circle still. I was. It's really interesting geographically how that plays out, and maybe that's a discussion for later. But it, there is something about this, even though it's not in all four Gospels, that this is, in many places, I think, the most attractive of the Christian holidays or, or festivals. And, and that's something we might want to think about, even though it is really just Luke and Matthew that contain it. Uh, well, and you know, you mentioned all four Gospels, and I think that's an important point, because Silent Night is a fine hymn. But, I mean, it's not primarily about round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. It's about the incarnation Right. And, you know, Athanasius got it right. Cause and, and I think that that is... And the, and the evangelists, that's what that's their point in telling yeah. these stories. And, and that's where, that's what John sees as the main point of the Christmas story, right? Is the word became flesh. And I think that is a, 
a great point, Paul, and maybe I'm getting us ahead of the cart, ahead of the horse with our main topic here. But Mike, you got anything else before we make a way no, to the free for all? No, I think we can uh, move to the free for all and uh, wait for the main topic. Welcome back. Uh, today for our free-for-all, we're going to uh, go around and ask the question, what's your favorite Christmas custom? It could be something that's in the church, it could be something that's uh, cultural, it could be personal in the family or anything like that. So uh, Paul said that he's got one ready to go. So why don't you start with us? So I can't say it's my favorite Christmas custom exactly, but it's maybe the most unusual Christmas custom. When my parents moved to the house that they bought in 1965. Uh, friends of theirs also had recently bought a house in the same neighborhood. And they said, oh, on the, your way back from church on Christmas Day, stop in and have an Abergut. And for people who don't know what an Abergut is, it's heard of it. brandy with peppermint schnapps. Okay, huh. I'm against it. So, <laughs> the, the alcohol with the alcohol mixer is always good. There we go. And so that's when it started. And so this is now more than 50 years ago now, isn't it? And uh, it kept on going and going, and eventually Isla May and Bob died. And I said, well, I guess we won't be having Abergut anymore. And the rest of the family said, what do you mean we won't be having Abergut anymore? <laughs> so every Christmas, when we have Christmas dinner, before Christmas dinner, we uh, drink an Abergut. Although now it's changed because not everybody likes it, and I don't blame them. Um, no, there, it's just those two alcohols mixed. There's not another... That's it. Huh. And a few years ago, I started writing Abergut songs. So we all <laughs> sing also. And it's a lot of fun. So I'll just say this, Paul. I've, <laughs> I've only known you for a short time, but I made this comment to you the other day, and I mean it in the most endearing way. You're such a nerd. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Are the are the Abergut songs about Abergut or are they about Christmas in general? Abergut, <laughs> Abergut, peppermint schnapps mixed with brandy. Uh, so they are tied to the drink. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> but but it's not you know. And then there's another line that you know it's it's not about drinking. It's all about family and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so anyway, so wait, Christmas is all about. Family. That's that's what I heard Paul say. So I'm just going to go with that. No, the celebration of Abergus. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. All right, Greg. What do you got for us? You know, I growing up in a house of seven kids, um, in a pastor's house, we did our three Christmas services because we had a large church, and I had a different part in each service because I always assumed that the pastor's kid knows how to do all this stuff really well. Uh, I just remember sitting outside on the um, porch after the last service and watching my parents painstakingly walk slowly home because we were going to do presents that night. And it never made sense to me why they walk so slowly. And now that I'm older and have kids, it's I don't know why they ever came home at all (laughs) after church was done, you know, because dad's got to preach first thing tomorrow morning. Mom has to play organ. So um, Christmas Eve has turned in, for me, just... A night of just waiting with, uh, what do you want to say? It's just awful. 
I hated <laughs> waiting for my parents. Um, I'd rather wait till to do Christmas presents on Christmas Day. Uh, but my children will not allow for that. Neither did I allow for that as a child either. Uh, the only other Christmas tradition we had, my parents would buy a Christmas tree and they left it in the garage because they didn't want to put it in the house yet. But they always Wait, they, convinced... They, they put it upright like in a stand Upright in the garage. In the garage. Okay. So It wasn't like they just dragged it home and then put it on the ground. No. <laughs> well, maybe some years that I don't remember. But, but they always convinced me that the tree had to stay in the garage for like a week or two before they put it up in the house. I probably wasn't 15 years old before they got a tree and they didn't put it in the garage. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> you have to put it in the garage. In the garage. Well... My parents. You just trust your parents. Mm-hmm. Those are two endearing stories, Greg. Thank what, you. What do you have, Wade? Uh, I would say probably biggest Christmas thing growing up uh, for me with my family was uh, each for the Johnston side, which was the the big side of the family. So there were six kids on the Johnston side, and then they all had they all had kids. And uh, by the time I was young. Uh, there were already some grandkids already in the mix too. So that would be the one that we would host at our house. And we were in a starter house for the first, oh, 25 years of my life. Uh, we were starting out. And I love that house and I love that neighborhood. And Trisha always gets very upset with me when I tell her that one day we're going to buy that house and live in that neighborhood. <clears throat> and uh, it, uh, you know, no basement, three bedrooms, uh, a kitchen, no dining room. That was your kitchen, dining room. Utility room was like the, we got so much stuff done in the utility room. But the the big old Johnston family in our house and would open presents and uh, a Johnston family get together is kind of, it's it's a unique thing and it's full of some personality. I know I know it might be hard to uh, to imagine. Um, but then we would all, uh, the, the, the Christmas party would probably start, I don't know, five or six, we'd have dinner. And then we'd go to midnight mass, and that was the family tradition: is that we would go um, to that mass, the Christmas Eve mass, and that was always the big mass. Um, and now I'm not advocating for Roman Catholic mass on Christmas Eve, um, but for me as a family, that was always a wonderful connection. Of now we're all going to celebrate Christmas. We've opened our presents, um, but that was really the last thing you did before you went to bed on Christmas Eve, as you went as a family. Uh, and at that point, we usually would go to Mass at our church, which was St. Robert Bellarmine, which was where I also went to school. And so, you know, you had your family, you had your friends, um, packed church. And, I mean, this was a big church. And the singing, uh, it just was Christmas Eve for me was always a big deal. And, and I'll say that, uh, you know, that's something that with the parish, I love, I love the parish, don't get me wrong, but I always kind of was like we were close enough that, Part of me just wished we could have got back down for Christmas Eve, but as people kind of scattered, people grew, uh, it's something that's kind of fallen by the wayside. And and that's something I do feel bad that I haven't been able to give my kids as much because um, now they, they had that Christmas Eve experience with their church family. Um, but I would say that's something that is probably good for people even to remember with their pastors in the holiday season, and, and Greg can on it too with his family, is that, you know, pastors are just have a very different holiday experience than their families do than a lot of others. I know for Trisha and I, you know, you tried to do Christmas Eve, Christmas, what you could with the kids, but you were just so depleted after everything that had gone on. It ended up being, we would go down to my parents a couple days after Christmas and we would have Christmas then as far as the family gathering. Um, And this is where I have my rather unpopular stance that uh, 
the church should be um, outlawed on Thanksgiving or the day before because that's a secular holiday and pastors should be able to celebrate. I'm a that fan way. of that stance, by the way. Well, I, think, I fully agree I think with pastors that. could travel home and actually see family and have a, you know, secular holiday with their family. But I get, we get angry um, mail, email every time I say that. So I understand some people don't like that and I'm not burdening anybody's conscience. But uh, but I can say thinking back, that was always just a pretty awesome thing uh, to be able to have and that's something that really I should be doing a better job now that I'm out of the parish and at WLC of, of trying to to cultivate. Um, but I would say that combination of the family getting together and then having church all on one day and one big thing uh, was pretty cool. Um, when we were in California, uh, we had an aunt and uncle who lived um, in Palos Verdes Estates, and their backyard overlooked the Catalina Islands. So every Thanksgiving and Christmas after church, we would drive down there and uh, spend a Southern California holiday overlooking the Pacific Ocean. So, Are you one of those people who, who loves having a white Christmas? Because I lived in California, too, and I want nothing to do with a white Christmas. I would like a white Christmas. I don't think we're going to get it here this year. No. but um, I'm just dreaming of it. Yeah, no, I do like that. Um, um, then December 26th, the snow can go away. Right. That's fine. Well, and really, you already, you're now in other, I mean, you're still Christmas season, but you've got a bunch of minor festivals that come, right? And I, I always thought that was pretty cool, right, actually, too. But but that's the thing with celebrating after. You're like, well, actually, this is, you know, the, the minor festival. Yeah, right. yeah uh, St. Stephen's <laughs> Church on the south side here in Milwaukee, Missouri Synod, used to, this is years ago, I don't know what they do now, but... On St. Stephen's Day, they had a, another service again, which in the Lutheran hymnal, you had Second Christmas Day as one of the, you know, there were rubrics for it. So. Yeah, we do kind of miss out that. We've talked about that, bef- you know, in, in America, we celebrate our holiday before the holiday, right? Yeah. All of them. And really, the church calendar is the opposite. You the the day starts yeah. starts the festival, right? And there there there's some ways you can kind of mitigate that a little bit, but it's difficult. Really, only Easter is the one we can we still kind of hold on to. Uh, but, the, but I mean, that's that's really I think a big part of why the church here does that is Christmas came. Now ponder it. Now think on it for a while. Easter came. Now ponder it. Now think about it. And if you think of the readings that come after that, you know there's. There's a nice intentionality about that as that develops. Uh, real quick, maybe if we go around, first thing that comes to mind when you think Christmas food, I'm going to go with, we always had ham. Goose. Really? Nice. <laughs> Rarely, but that's That would have nice. been, I've, the, was that a wing unit where I was talking about birds? And yeah. I thought maybe a turkey wasn't a bird, but yeah, um, but goose would be another my bird that I would try eating. The, when the farm relatives had Christmas dinner, it would be... A domestic goose, and when her parents had dinner, it would be a goose that her father shot. Uh, goose is pretty good. Oh, I is love it, goose, yeah. Yeah, I want to try that. I think I'd go ham, too. Uh, just growing up, my grandpa hated turkey, so I was also one of those people on Thanksgiving. We never had turkey. Uh-huh. Uh, but Christmas, we always had ham, as far as I can remember. But and I, I think I, that's a Detroit, big Detroit thing as well as, like, maybe you guys had that, too, but in Chicago, but um, honey-glazed ham. Like there would be lines yeah. around the block for certain, especially um, po- for some reason, um, Polish shops. Like uh, this was really, I don't know, maybe they have the best hams, but. Well, in good Polish Catholic families in Milwaukee, after midnight mass would come back 
and then they'd have the Polish sausage and everything because the fast was uh, over. Because I know the like Advent fast. Ham Believe it or not, there was such a thing. Warrendale and those neighborhoods that were historically heavy Polish. Yeah. That they were the ones that had the big the big lines for the honey glazed yeah. ham too. Mike, what do you got? Um, I don't think we had anything specific growing up. I'm sure we did, but I don't remember. Um, but uh, for a while there in Wood Lake. I don't know why we did this, but we had bratwurst <laughs> after <laughs> Christmas Eve service. Is it easy? Um, and like sliced up, you know, kind of, and then you would like almost like with toothpicks, kind of like as if it were a <laughs> delicatessen. <laughs> 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 so uh, we did that for a while. So, but that's always kind of difficult when you, for a pastor's family. And so we would just kind of have, we try to eat before, but then you're hungry by the time you get home. And so you had snacks and stuff. It always, it always worked out pretty well though. But yeah, I, I Christmas Eve. Uh, I some pastors don't like um, the Christmas Eve children's service um, and are happy to kick that to somebody else. But uh, I didn't. I really liked it and wanted it to be done well and not a pageant. And so I wrote all mine and and the fat the past. Did you at least have a sermon in it? Yeah, and then the the uh, maybe last three or four years I directed it and did everything like I was the one getting up and down and I just said I'm going to do it and I kind of enjoyed it so that's I, one thing I do miss from the parish I think what you were talking about growing up in a pastor's house it was hard to establish all kinds of traditions just because Christmas yeah. didn't start for us until December and 26th and with my kids they don't best. have a lot of traditions probably that, really that come to mind Yeah, I thought you always watched Die Hard. That's that's the one we do do. We do watch we watch Die Hard on Christmas Day. Uh, Johnsons have come a long way from Livonia. The in Sophie half watches it. She'll come down and then she'll say, Fifth Commandment says killing is wrong," and then she'll go back upstairs. It's, it's a <laughs> but far, he's killing far, terrorists, far, and I believe there's a Bible verse the, about that. Yeah. Far cry from the uh, uh, midnight mass <laughs> that you grew up with. Oh, how the mighty have fallen! This All is right. Christmas Day, not Christmas. Okay, okay, you're right. That makes it better. All right. Uh, anything else? I think we'll just go to the main topic. Sounds good. to our main topic and we're going to be talking Christmas but especially kind of informing that discussion will be three things that we read or at least are pretending we read uh, for today the first being Athanasius on the Incarnation and we're reading that together with C.S. Lewis introduction to that and really the C.S. Lewis introduction could be its own episode too because there's really good stuff in there and I know stuff that here on the third floor and the humanities here at the college we could probably go on and on and on about the value of old books and primary sources. Um, but On the Incarnation by Athanasius and then some uh, the C.S. Lewis uh, introduction to that. But then also we looked at one of my favorite Luther sermons. Um, it's one I've actually used it in Bible classes at different places. I did this down at Wisco. I've done it uh, in some churches. But Sermon on the Afternoon of Christmas Day. This is on Luke 2, 1 through 14. It's from December 25th, shocker, Christmas Day. 
1530. If you're a Lutheran, you hear that year 1530. You know that's the year of the Augsburg Confession. Um, so a big year for Lutheranism. Uh, but maybe if we just start off, we have this guy, Athanasius. Um, I always liked it as a name. I think it'd be a great name for a kid. If any of our listeners do have a boy and choose to name him Athanasius, let us know and we'll send you some swag. Uh, we'll try to think of whatever appropriate swag yeah, would we'll, be. We'll get him uh, boxing lessons too because I'm guessing he's going to get in a few fights along the way. Why would he get in a few fights? That's a great name. Yeah. Um, but uh, don't let Mike talk you out of this. I think this is a, a great decision if you want to make it. Um, but Athanasius, you've maybe heard that term because you hear Athanasian Creed once a year. Um, we have uh, three pastors. And maybe with me twice a year because some churches will have it on Christmas Day. Okay, you just cut me off yeah, on what I was I'm trying sorry. to do, Mike. I'm just saying. Well, okay, besides maybe Christmas Day, which you now told everybody, um, we have three pastors in the room, so I'm sure we all know uh, the other day of the church here where people are going to be familiar with the Athanasian Creed. Trinity Sunday. Will be Trinity Sunday. And that is because the Athanasian Creed is the most detailed, and we'll go into the Trinity a lot. It's that really long creed is how most people know it. The second way people maybe know it about is it's that really long creed that has that part at the end I never quite understand because it doesn't sound very Lutheran. Um, it is a very Lutheran ending to it, and it's very Matthew 25. Um, but we won't get lost in the Athanasian Creed, but you might have heard the term for that. Athanasius uh, was called in the past, has been called the Black Dwarf. He's going to come out of North Africa, Bishop of Alexandria, and uh, just a persistent guy who really was very important in, uh, you know, the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed is very important and it establishes Christology very well in a biblical fashion. And we tend to think, okay, that settled it. And we sometimes miss it didn't really settle it as much as we thought that there was still a lot of um, false teaching about Christ and his person and his work out there. And Athanasius is going to be exiled a number of times for this. But maybe, Paul, if you, if you don't mind, if you could give us a sense for I know this is some, something that you use in class as well. Um, why is Athanasius writing on the incarnation? Um, how does, you know, who he is fit in with this? And why is it a, a good read for Christmas? Well, for purposes of total disclosure, um, as Wade said, I do teach this in our doctrine course under Christology, and along with it, um, so the students read about half of On the Incarnation by Athanasius, uh, and along with it, they get a little bit of Anselm, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man, um, and then Luther, the other one we're going to discuss, Luther's Sermon on the Afternoon of Christmas Day, uh, and mainly I want them to see three different approaches to dealing with Christology among these three church fathers. Um, the Council of Nicaea, of course, is a big deal. The end of the persecutions is a big deal as far as background for on the incarnation. And the fact that um, Athanasius is, has to stand up and defend against Arianism uh, and continuing to do so, actually. And Arianism, just briefly, we're not talking Nazi why Arianism <laughs> of racial things. Um, but Arius, I guess, fair way to put it, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, is basically that Christ was to some degree a creature. He was created. Um, there was a time when Christ wasn't, and Athanasius is going to emphasize, contrary to that, he's the eternally begotten Son of God. So not we hear Arianism, we tend to think World War II Nazis. 
Um, this is Arianism with an I, and this is a teaching that just wouldn't go away um, for a long time that Athanasius is then countering. And the other thing that I have to explain to students always is the background of Hellenic culture. So the Greek culture, Greek philosophy, and it's even going on in the Council of Nicaea that how are we going to find adequate terminology to be able to talk about these truths that have been revealed to us. Um, and Athanasius actually makes some very cogent arguments. So he's certainly basing everything on scripture, but also saying these are reasonable arguments as well, and here's why. And some of them are unusual for us, and so I go through that in quite a bit of detail. I, I think the fact that some are unusual too is helpful. Um, as a reminder that the church historically, uh, we can sometimes benefit from ch from studying church history as well as studying uh, fellow Christians across geographic lines as well, or um, I'd even say denominational lines, because points of emphases um, and ways of approaching things can sometimes be different yet still be very biblical and very helpful. And so I think where Athanasius comes at some things from can be a helpful reminder to us of the importance of the incarnation. I think as Lutherans, we tend to be really good on Good Friday and pretty good on Easter. Um, but even with Christmas, you know, we have this temptation, or at least I do, to want to go right from the wood of the manger to the wood of the cross. Um, this child came to die and and we sometimes lose the wonder and the importance of the incarnation itself. And in fact, we can oftentimes put the incarnation largely in terms of um, Anselm, right, the uh, substitutionary atonement, mm -hmm. and miss some of the fact that the incarnation in and of itself has a lot of stuff worth unpacking going on in it, too. So one of these that's unusual for us, and of course, Athanasius means the undying one. So you can name your kid Athanasius because no matter how much he gets beat up, he's not going to die. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of his arguments is that God created us out of nothing. And we also sometimes tend to think of heaven as very static. That we go there, everything's safe, we're all done, you know. Um, and the East, but I think the good West also, looks at heaven as being more dynamic, that God is infinite, and for all eternity, we can grow into the life of the Holy Trinity. It's not something that's, oh, I'm here, I'm done. I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, you know. Where do I go fishing at now? Yeah. Well, yes, or, or the best golf courses will be in heaven, you know, that kind of nonsense. Anyway, um, God created us out of nothing and intended us to be growing into the life of the Trinity forever as the highest good but by the fall into sin, we turned away. And then Athanasius says, man was heading back to the nothing from which he was created. Now, you can't go out of existence, okay? But it's almost, I draw little, little stick men getting smaller and smaller and smaller on the board as, as people become less and less and less uh, because they turned away from God. And so the incarnation brings us back and turns us back in the right direction again and gives us life as well. Maybe some other things on, on when we pass over the incarnation. I think maybe um, there's some Christological things that we don't really fully develop. Um, there's something uh, to seeing 
the physical as good in itself. Mm -hmm. It's only because of sin that it's corrupt, right? That has huge ramifications in the history uh, of of Christianity. Also, uh, just God being, uh, specifically Jesus Christ being able to sympathize with us. Like, he literally went through everything that that we went through of course without sin but that that's very 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 comforting and i don't know that we we either turn that into jesus is my buddy or we kind of just ignore that and i I think there's something profound that jesus has literally gone through what humanity has gone through and made it on the other side through a death and resurrection and by my baptism into him i know that i will make it to the other side through the death of my old adam and then the resurrection uh to all eternity there, there there's something that we we miss we put jesus up in heaven and there he remains kind of thing so maybe one of you know anybody want to talk about the issues with Christology or the physicality or the closeness of Jesus when it comes to the incarnation that perhaps we met, Greg? Well, I had a conversation the other day in an unrelated topic when we were talking about the essential qualities of what it is to be a human being, because the person was arguing, well, we are born sinful and there's nothing we can do about it. And the follow-up argument then was, therefore, Sin is an essential quality of our humanity. Oh, now I'm getting excited. Uh-oh. Right. Uh-oh. <laughs> now I'm getting deflation in me. Right. So, so then we, you know, we. I'm uh, I'm Athanatos. Remember. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we had a conversation about well, what does it mean if sin is an essential quality of being a human being? It doesn't take long to get to the snowball fact that you are not saved. I mean it. Or that Jesus couldn't be fully human. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where right. the snowball goes. Right. But what an interesting um, a, a dynamic that is for us as human beings. What does it mean to be a human being? Um, not only in the perfect sense as Jesus Christ was, but just for us, what does it mean to be a human and being? And there's not, not a whole lot of hope that, well, this is, this, is, this is my ultimate end here is just this kind of sinful, corrupt, whatever do the best you can, and then you die. Right. Um, there's not really a hope of a glorious body and a um, an existence in heaven with Christ. Right. I think this gets back to maybe John's gospel, and I I feel like we're neglecting Mark today, um, since we're talking about Mike's gospel and and Peter's gospel a lot. Um, but isn't that somewhat what John is doing at the beginning of his gospel, as he echoes Genesis, is to reassert the both the value and the fallenness of humanity, right? The people are scared of the light. And I always think of the, that light darkness picture that, uh, that John uses. When we were in middle school, we went to uh, Greenfield Village. Mike, did you ever go to Greenfield Village when you lived I in did. Michigan? And so it's like they, Henry Ford bought like a bunch of historical stuff and then moved it to Detroit. So, you know, this is capitalism and it's very fun to, you know, that he was able to do this. And so you can see like Thomas Edison's workshop, the Wright Brothers. But they also have like a like a working farm or whatever. And my second favorite Greenfield Village memory is this one time a horse got away from this kid who was working there. And the horse is running down the road and everybody's like, well, there's a horse. And then you just see this kid like a little bit after, like you could tell it's like this high schooler's first job, like just sprinting after the horse, you know, like maybe my boss won't notice. But uh, so in middle school, they, we went and they were letting us like, we're working the farm, whatever. 
and we thought we'd let the sheep out. So the sheep are in this barn, and we thought this would be great. Like, the sheep will get out and, like, chase the girls around. Or You know, we had in our heads this is going to be glorious. And we slide open the, the barn door, and the sheep just huddled back deeper into the barn in the darkness. They, they were afraid to go out. And I remember thinking, oh, stupid sheep, right? And, uh, you know, John reminds us, now human beings after the fall, that is our natural inclination, not essential inclination, but by nature to do so. But John is also reminding us, as he's echoing Genesis 1 and 2, that we're made in the image of God, that, that Christ becoming us was not humiliation in the sense of it was embarrassing to him to become one of us, but it's only humiliation in the sense that he's setting aside part of his divine powers. If anything, he's elevating humanity by tabernacling among us, right? This is this is a, a wonderful thing that he's doing with his incarnation. Not, it, not only that he comes to save us, but that he, right, even angels long to look into these things. When the angels fell, Christ didn't become an angel, but he takes on flesh. And I think that that does have... You know, Mike, you mentioned physicality, and I, I held off teasing. Um, and I'm not going to now either. Uh, I made it the whole we recorded with Davis yesterday on sci-fi, but Professor Davis is a uh, a chemist, and I made it the whole episode without a meth joke. And I told Peter <laughs> I gave myself three sanctification points for that. So I'm going to lay off physicality in two sanctification points. But, um, but I think it has vocational impacts, too, for us that we remember... Um, that flesh is, the human flesh is a good thing, that this is a, it is fallen. And we sometimes hear flesh in the scriptures and we think like, oh, the meat of us is bad, our bodies are the problem, and we can read this in a platonic way. Um, But Christ comes into the flesh, why? To serve us. And so now still today, God works through the flesh, works through us to serve others too. And we can sometimes think, well, the body and earth are the problem and, you know, earthly things, life with my neighbor, these things get in the way of my spirituality um, when it's really God himself took flesh and goes in the midst of them. And yes, we labor in the midst of sin. Yeah, I, when both Paul and John are talking talking about, okay, the, the flesh versus the spirit kind of thing, that kind of concept, depending on what words they use, there's, there's a point that they're making. And the point is not that the flesh is bad and then the spirit or the soul or the mind or whatever is good, right? Uh, the soul is sinful, <laughs> right? And vice versa, the, um, the flesh um, is redeemed, first of all, but also it uh, is not in itself evil. Like that, That's somehow keeping us down. And so when you think about the incarnation, you know, we can argue, would God have been physical if there was no sin? I, you know, I, to have a communion with us, I, whatever. But uh, when he takes on flesh for our salvation, um, he is also coming close to us. Right. There's a fellowship there. And so if you, if you think about it this way, if God is going to be in evangelical, and what I mean by that is he wants it's all Canadian, men to be saved. Yeah, <laughs> he wants all men to be saved. He has to come to us because we can't go to him. And so it, it, I don't want to use the word necessary, but it certainly makes sense that he would become fleshy. He would somehow come close to us. And so when you start thinking about, okay, the closeness of God to us, to, to love us, to reconcile us to himself, to save us, you start thinking, okay, then it makes sense that 
it's a physical word and there's physical sacraments and it makes sense that he would use physical vocations and that then spurs on also uh liturgically if god's really there that's I mean, that's the difference between lutheran uh worship in my view and uh, more evangelical worship is starting at a point we're actually going to see jesus and in fact he's coming into our presence in the sense that he comes to us in and brings us ways. into his in, in we have an encounter with god i should say this way god encounters us the sinner and with his gifts of salvation and so the physicality has Mike to is do making a fantastic with hand gesture, by the way. I would say, Greg, you're right across from him. It looks like he has a salt and a pepper shaker, and he's just kind of <laughs> shaking them all over. Would you um, agree with that? It the, is delightful. The, the, phys- delightful the physicality has to do with God coming to save us and be near us and having fellowship with us. Um, th- th- there's something to that, and it's tied with the incarnation and then with vocation, but also with the sacraments and liturgy and everything else. But um, Just one, one thing real quick. And you, you point out something good there, Mike, but I want to build on it just briefly, and then I'll, I'm going to defer for a while. Um, but it is interesting, and I think it shows how much Christian theology has been influenced by non-Christian thought and philosophy, is that we'll say, so Christ came, and, and you mentioned, right, the soul is sinful too. We tend to think of the body being where the real problem is, Right. And then where we think, where do Americans especially, but even Christians of many ages go to as the thing that they want to protect from being too impacted is the will, right? So like, yeah, you know, the soul and the will are just kind of trapped in the body. Well, actually, no, concupiscence, the problem is the will. It's the will that's been that's been turned and, into And it's a, you have to carefully read Paul to get that. You right. can't, it's very easy to... Or to, read John 1 and yeah, get that. And just go over and go, oh, it's the, the flesh is bad. Right, and the spirit is good. Well, you got to read the whole thing. But I was going to, Paul. We, um, you can go wherever you want, but you know, maybe the East-West kind of thing. What are we missing in the Western world, or just anything where you want to go? What does Athanasius bring to Christmas? Well, first of all, when you're talking about the, I mean, Athanasius is definitely (laughs) anti-Gnostic. We can, you know, so the idea of you know you're going through the dichotomy of soul and body and so on. And um, he certainly, and, and talking talking about how Christ by his incarnation has brought us close to God, I mean, the big deal in Athanasius on the incarnation is when he gets to the point and he says, God was made man that we might be made God in him. And of course he doesn't mean God in essence, but it's, it's an extreme statement, you might say. I suppose Athanasius is capable of hyperbole just as, guess who, Luther <laughs> is capable yeah. of hyperbole. Yeah in making a statement like that, and yet the point he's making is how close we're brought to God because Christ has taken on human flesh but then also performed all of his acts of salvation for us. Um, One of the things I find really interesting in Athanasius is so when we get to uh, Christology and we're going into the formula of Concord and so on, and uh, in even in the regular doctrine class, they have to learn about the, the idiomatic genus, the majestic genus, and the apotelismatic genus. And I'm not going to define them right now, but they're all in Athanasius on the incarnation. Also, humiliation and exaltation, as they're properly defined, that's in here. Um, I also talk about atonement motifs. You know, we tend to say in, in Lutheranism, a lot of times it's forensic and that's it. Yeah, that's, you know, we're declared not guilty. Well, Scripture has a lot of different ways of talking about how we're redeemed. 
So the Christus Victor motif, you know, that Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil, which is all over the early fathers. Um, sacrifice and then Anselmian satisfaction and all that sort of thing. It's all in here. So why am I saying this? Because if people say, oh, I think I'm going to read something about Athanasius and about this book, that's fine if you have enough time. <laughs> but spend your time on the primary source because it's really, really good. And it's not a long book. And it's not long. And you can skip the part about the Jews. That's okay. It's not politically correct. So, um, <laughs> And that's exactly what C.S. Lewis was getting at in that's his introduction. That's another commonality with Luther, though, huh? Yeah, yeah I know. So. But, yeah, C.S. Lewis, that's his whole point, right, in his um, introduction to um, On the Incarnation is um, we feel like <laughs> We need to. He he makes a point that maybe we're afraid of reading Athanasius, so I have to go and read something else about right. Athanasius. And and this is true. Students still today. He yeah. makes a point that his students are nervous about the yeah. primary, so they go yeah. to the secondary. And then we. And then what he says is actually it's a lot easier just to read the primary sources, right? Um, I mean, there's there's value of saying okay. You know, okay, I read Augustine. Now I need to maybe, I need to have somebody else's opinion on it because I'm not quite sure I got it. But you need to, you kind of need to read it first. And I haven't always been good at that. I mean, it's easier to just, it's easier to pick up a, a flashy book that just came out instead of, you know, I, I have the, the whole volumes of the fathers, the very small print and sometimes archaic language. And, They're down by Paul's <laughs> neither. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Antinician fathers and Antinician fathers and whatever. It can it it can be daunting. It can be daunting. But um, even and even like when you, for me, this was for Aristotle. I'm like, I can never read Aristotle. And you read it, it's like it's a, this is actually. I mean, it's complicated thought, but you're like the language is not that. Difficult. Thomas Aquinas. I don't know if I should mention him on this kind of podcast, uh, but we'll let it go. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas is easy to read. I would right? agree with that too. I mean, the thought it can be very complicated, but when I use Aquinas and ethics, the students always can track yeah. it just fine. And that reminds me of you know, sort of John's Gospel too. I mean, it's the easiest Greek, right? right? And yet it's most profound. And I think Augustine said something about that. You know, the Augustine. Augustine. <laughs> Go like the 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 way into Scripture is low. But when you get in, it's high. And he, I didn't mean this exactly the same way, but you can read it. It's accessible. You know, you don't have to have a PhD to to grab onto these great authors. You don't have to be a theo, a professional theologian to read the scriptures. Not at all, right? Um, but do be warned that when you get in there and you start thinking about it, it it's it's it can be quite profound. And well, I, I think Paul hit on an important thing. Uh, that's very important for preaching is, you know, that, that not everything has to be through the lens of forensic justification. Now, of course, all four of us in this room think forensic justification is very important, and um, our confessions and Luther hold this to be very important. I hold this to be very important. I mean, in most of the theological work I do as it relates to preaching is through that lens. But I think the content of preaching really suffers when we do miss out on things like you mentioned, Christus Victor, um, if we're only going to see everything through Anselm or through forensic justification, and we're not going to see the imagery that Scripture also uses in very rich ways um, for what's taken place for our salvation, then it's easy to have that sermon that does sound the same every Sunday. And sometimes our people are right when they say it's the same sermon every Sunday. And it's not that it's the same sermon every Sunday. In the, the same, the, the sermon should be the same every Sunday in that there's law and gospel. 
Um, but we are missing something. We're maybe not preaching biblical sermons if it is the same imagery every Sunday because Scripture is just abounding with images. And I think this is a good reminder, too. Um, the uh, Athanasius is going to very much get Christ is taking on flesh to be one of us, right? He's a substitute, so to speak. He's not, but he's not going to go where Anselm goes. This is he's not Anselmic in his view of things. Um, and the East, in many ways, will have some very rich, beautiful um, sermons and and works on our salvation. But they're not right. Anselm comes later, and there's I I always view Anselm as kind of what the book of Hebrews is doing in the New Testament, right? It gets, now, Anselm and Hebrews are not one-to-one, but, right, Hebrews is is looking at a very specific aspect of what Christ does as high priest or a scapegoat. And this is, um, Paul doesn't do that same thing in Romans as Paul does in Hebrews. I'll go ahead and say that. But I think there is, on the incarnation is helpful for that too, of there are way more images and pictures and and uh, biblical ways of speaking about this thing that that we sometimes employ and preaching can really be enriched by that and people's understanding can really be enriched by that and I think that is um, a helpful point of of this work and others like it and he adds even more richness to it when he talks about the martyrs mm-hmm. because you know why do we have first of all they did raise monuments to the martyrs which is an interesting thing for us to remember um, but why do we do that? Well, because they're alive in Christ. You know, they, they were willing to suffer everything, even death, death rather than deny Christ. The persecutions are still a recent memory for these people. Um, and let's celebrate life, that, you know, because of what Christ did by taking on human flesh and by also suffering and dying for us, we can celebrate the life that those martyrs are now enjoying in heaven. If I can ask a question as the only non-full-time professor here who teaches this stuff all the time. Um, I don't. We, I actually don't work full-time, though, just so to be clear. I'm just oh, yeah, paid I've heard, full-time. I've, I've heard that, yeah. that whole spiel. Um, it, you know, St. Athanasius, accessible. Anyone can read it. How do you guys, though, convince someone that it actually matters? You know, for someone to read through the incarnation, for to help people connect the dots between, I understand what he's saying here. I'm not sure what it has to do with me. So, you know, sometimes I think there are people who need help connecting those dots. Do you have, and, and, and I think this also might switch us a little bit into Luther's, because I think Luther does a really nice job of that in his sermon. I'm just wondering if you guys have any thoughts on that, because there are some complicated theological thoughts that your average student may not immediately understand what it has to do with them. Although, you know, I'm lucky because I'm in the classroom and I can do my little diagram on the board and explain things the way a teacher does in a classroom. Now, if, you know, Olga, somebody, a member of my congregation is saying, you know, pastor, should I read on on the incarnation? That's another conversation, really. And, you know, how to explain it to, I mean, you can explain it in simple terms, I think, that this is as much about our salvation as anything you'll ever read. And I mean, in the classroom, it's good when you confuse them because that's how you get to the point of yeah. the instruction and the illustrations to help it come home. I, maybe if we do go to the Luther sermon, um, if we could just briefly go around the uh, the table, and if, if someone didn't read the Luther sermon, that's fine. None of this was required for anybody. Um, I know my most important takeaway from the Luther sermon, but I would be interested to hear what you guys have. What stood out to you is, is um, most interesting or important in the Luther sermon? If anybody has anything they'd like to volunteer on that. 
Well, um, I have read that sermon before and did it for class. Um, I am not as big a fan as the 1530 sermon as you did, so I read three other Lutheran sermons on Christmas. That's that was my two sanctification. That, no, that was that was why. But you I, lose one for bragging about it. Was, don't show your that was that was why I got bad grades in college. Is when someone told me to read something, I would read something else. And I can attest that you that know. is indeed what Mike did. Then, then, so I got bad grades, and um, because I I don't like to be told what to do, apparently. So, <laughs> but uh. So I read quite a few, actually, uh, three or four of his, his sermons on there. And so um, what really kind of struck me, and this is off topic a little bit, but on how much he actually preached about sanctification on Christmas and how much it was just do it. Like, and, and, and it's similar to uh, what he would say in, uh, when he would speak on sanctification in, in Romans. Um, and he makes a big point in one sermon about the shepherds um, that they didn't go out into the desert when they heard the news. Like they were, com- they were compelled to go speak. And the compelling was not because they stopped and thought like, well, we better do this. It was just a natural thing because something great had happened right before them, the incarnation. And so they could not, they were compelled, they could not help. They didn't stop and think about it. They just did it. And he makes the point a roundabout way, but this is what Christ has done for you. And then you are just compelled to do it sometimes without thinking about it. And, and, and that, I think that was very helpful. And it's something you remember in our Christmas season. It's not, it's not Jesus did this for you. Now you better go do this, but to really really expound upon uh, the great mystery that is the incarnation, and that will be the motivation, right? So the Christmas sermon shouldn't be, Jesus gave you a gift, so now let's talk about charity for 20 minutes, right? But rather he's saying... Are we right, man? <laughs> but rather he is saying, this is just so fantastic. It's, it's the greatest mystery there really is. When you think about it, God becoming man, how does, how does, it, how does that work? And that uh, the natural reaction is truly a gospel motivation. And so maybe more time um, profoundly expounding upon the mystery and less time with sort of kind of cheesy law would be the lesson that I would take from from Luther's sermons on that. Sorry, I didn't read what you... I, I did skim it. Does that count? But you did a work of super irrigation. <laughs> super irrigation. I, and I read three sermons, extra Actually, sermons. Actually, you did a very monastic so thing one... because you didn't do the one thing you were called to do, <laughs> right. but you did a bunch yes. of other things that you thought would but please I give people. But I give you, there's three of you here, I give you each of my each of my extra works for you. <laughs> You're welcome. Merry Christmas. Uh, Paul or uh, uh, Greg, anything you guys had? Well, yeah, I think, and this kind of gets to the question that I asked before, is how do you connect the dots for people? I think I, unlike Paul, unlike Mike, am not filled with extra motivation to do extra things just to spite Wade. Um, <laughs> so I only read the one sermon. Um, but what, what struck me is how you, you take this big grand doctrine that just seems like something that I can't grasp, but then, then he made it personal. Yeah. And, and almost how he talks about the Lord's Supper as well. The words for you are the thing that makes a big difference. It's almost as if they're, it's the same I, I can't imagine. Thing. Is there actually yeah. a connection there? Um, but just, just the fact that he, he drives home this point, 
um, this child is more yours than it is Mary's, which just really struck me as... That's a fantastic section there, yeah. Right, and and you just talk about, like I said, this grand doctrine, but it's mine. It's not just some grand doctrine that's out there in a book that St. Athanasius wrote about years and years ago. No, this is mine. It's And it's he's not for saying me. it to, uh, to diss Mary. He's doing it to lift up the the hearer right yeah exactly so that that just really stuck out to me and and the more that we can take these big theological thoughts and connect the dots for people who may not be able to see that automatically and say look this this is why this matters for you i that that was my big takeaway and that's the correct answer if you were in my class when we're studying this <laughs> oh good so i got an a <laughs> and i was anticipating that would be what wade would say too because that's that's a big deal in here uh, the for yeah. you you know and and I, I like the fact that you connect, connected it with the words for you requires only a believing heart you know that kind of thing the i found the mary comment challenging um not i mean he's he's very careful you know you we shouldn't make such a big deal about the Theotokos when we're, you know, celebrating Christmas. Um, but it's interesting when he says he's more my, say, my child, Mary, than yours, um, because he's just said she needs him as much as anybody needs him, ah. which is good, you know. Right. And you could misinterpret his words by saying he's even my, more my savior than yours. Because you don't really need one all that much, you know. Right. If he hadn't said what he said previously, but what? So, so it's, it's hyperbole again. But he does strike a balance, which I think is kind of interesting. I, it, it struck me pretty much that he says, "Therefore, I will love the mother, but even more the child." It's not. You don't have to say, "Oh well, Mary, let's forget her. Let's get her out of the picture." Yeah. You know? um, and he even says, you know, the. Uh, Angel said, you know, blessed are you among women. Yeah. Uh, so I, I had a professor one time who said, that's why we still call her the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, how often growing up Lutheran did I hear her ever called the Blessed Virgin the, Mary the, among the Lutherans? <laughs> yeah. And I think he does, you know, Luther will do that with hyperbole there. He does come back around, as you said, and then he explains what he means. And I think in that section when he's saying he's more mine than yours, what he, uh, I think he would have had Mary say the same to that person. Um but she would also say it in the sense of not that he's more mine because I gave birth to him, but through yeah. faith. So this appropriation that comes through faith. And so um, you guys, the me, two of you who actually read it. Let me, let me, uh, let me, no, Mike, you're not. No, let second. me just interject here. It's a two point. So um, I didn't want to bring this up because I didn't want to open up that can of worms. But Mike my has favorite been pointing line, out the time of the episode, too, like we should be thinking about how much time we have left. And now he's, now we have less I just want to point out he's interrupting. <laughs> Here's here's to the point of Mary and uh, how Luther speaks about him at Christmas. Now, we said before, Mary is the Christian church. Joseph, the servants of the church, as the bishops and pastors should be if they preach the gospel. Here is the church as preferred uh, before the prelates of the church, as Christ also says in Luke 22. And he goes on, but it actually is a profound point here that Mary pondered these things in her heart, and this is where she... Um, she knew about Christ, and so when you go, you go to the church that ponders these things. And, what and uh, stuff what like year that. is that sermon, Mike? I, I don't. The Baker one doesn't put the dates on there. Yeah, this is the second Christmas day. And the church brings forth Christ before the world, just as Mary brought forth right. Christ physically. Right. So there, there's some there, there's some beautiful things. Yeah, there, and in the was. early sermons, he likes to have the fourfold uh, method of interpretation. Are you going to do an early late Luther on me? No, what I'm saying is, is the sermon that I picked actually is First Order Proclamation based on the Incarnation. 
and then what you picked is some allegory. I have to say, as a as a regular connoisseur of the podcast, this is the first time I've sat in here and watched you two. It's amazing how you can hear Mike's ir- irritation <laughs> by just not saying anything, uh, but now to actually physically see it is just delightful. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, and hopefully you can convey that a little bit for the 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 other list, or you have conveyed that. Um, what I wanted to get at was that I think, and I, I do want us to come back to C.S. Lewis a little bit at the close, and I know, Mike, you've been mentioned about the time, but I think we're absolutely fine because um, the point of this is to, to cover a fair amount, and I think uh, Greg and Paul are bringing good stuff. So um, I, I would say building off what, what uh, Paul and, and Greg had on this is, and Paul uh, has been downright for, uh, Ferdian today, and I like that. Um, talking about a the different pictures for what Christ has done, he doesn't realize that, and he's probably gonna be upset with me for saying that. But um, oh. that uh, the Christus Victor or um, scapegoat imagery, or um, you know the, the the many different ways of looking at what Christ has done. Um, but also, what what you two got at was something we talked about in the last preaching episode. Was this this Luther sees the importance in here of first order proclamation, which is the the two-you-ness of preaching. It's not just throwing out some concepts and hoping that the the hearer can appropriate them for themselves, which uh, is something I have less and less patience for now with preaching, this kind of dry, you know. Um, and Athanasius, too, is right. He's driving this home to us, and I think that's what preaching should do. Um, but what Luther comes again and again to, two of the most important words in Christmas are to you. Um, and he talks about first faith and second faith. So first faith is, yeah, Jesus came and was born, and that's nice. Second faith is, he did it for me, and that's the faith which you are getting at, Paul, right? They can boast to Mary. This is more my child than yours, and we could each say that to each other in the room. Uh, the two you-ness of the Christmas account. And sometimes people will get all upset about Christmas and the culture, and, you know, people are just trying to make money off Christmas or... You know, this store doesn't actually care about Christmas. They, they're they just, you know, playing into whatever agenda. At the end of the day, I think the culture does us, provides us a wonderful opportunity. Even when it's just holiday, it's not Christmas. By the way, we get all worked up about happy holidays. It means holy day, and the holy day is Christmas. We get mad about Xmas, the X is Christ. So chill, right? Um, but they're really setting up a moment where we can kind of say, all this stuff that has been around you about Christmas that you're digging and you get like you want something, a time of the year that's magical and special. And even if you're not getting where that magicalness and specialness is rooted, then we get a chance as Christians, if we're not going to spend all our time getting upset about coffee mugs or what other other nonsense, that we can actually now step in and say, this is this is a magical time. It's a special time and it's for you. It's to you. And it's rooted in Christ's incarnation. Rather than beating the priesters over their head for not being in church the other 50 weeks, um, remember an angel loses its wings every time you say Jesus is the reason for the season. Um, <laughs> you know, rather than the same old law every year about commercialism and materialism, if you want to get on commercialism and materialism, that's great. How about the other 51 weeks of the year we kind of talk about our capitalist cultural assumptions? Um, and how, you know, the church becomes default ally, ally of commercialism and materialism in many ways. And we abandon our beautiful old church buildings and big, you know, build in the new suburban whatever. Um, but uh, and build our buildings to look like auditorium commercial centers. We could go on and on about this. But um, 
but just take it to get to the to you. And guess what? If you're a little gospel heavy on Christmas, um, they'll survive it. They'll survive it. And they'll maybe understand what the point is of coming back the next week. If it's just law beating them into coming back next week, um, you, you better be on your game to law beat them every week. I always, um, my favorite Easter sermon, I'm going to skip ahead, best Easter sermon perhaps ever preached outside of Scripture is Chrysostom. Um, and if you read Chrysostom's Easter sermon, you would go, and Chrysostom's a guy who can have like an hour on alms, right? <clears throat> I mean, he just, his Easter sermon is just boom, gospel, 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 image, image, image. And short. Gospel. Yeah. Um, my students read it, my freshman. Yeah, and it's a very powerful sermon. And it's okay to do that with Christmas, too. It's okay to, to make it Christological, and I think that's where Luther takes it, and he says, this is to you. Yeah, and, that, and we kind of mentioned that being a little heavy on the forensic side of explaining this salvation, and it's beautiful, it's, it's, it's scriptural, it's great. I think it's kind of the easiest way in, especially for our students. Okay, let's just think about this very dryly, and then you can start, at least I then start expanding out of the the other pictures there. But when we get stuck with that kind of forensics thing, we kind of have to, on Christmas especially, say, here's your sin, you're a commercialist. Now here, Jesus had to come and save you from this. Instead of maybe um, another picture is, then you are beaten down by sin, and it's your fault. You need to be rescued, and here comes your redeemer, kind of thing. It's a different way of thinking about it, and I think that's so. And on the Chris- Athanasian picture of God just couldn't stand by and let it happen. Yeah. That this humanity that was He put so much love into and care for that God couldn't even fathom not coming to save you. Right, and I think that especially on those high holidays when you and you're going to have visitors, you're going to have people that haven't been in church for a while. Um, they're just going to roll their eyes when it's just Thanksgiving is about not being thankful and Christmas is about not being a commercialistic jerk or whatever. There, there are other things there to talk about. These people are hurting, you know, or, or, and you don't have to always explain, I know you're busy and you're anxious and life is tough, you know, be a little bit more profound in both the law, but then also in the gospel and Christmas is that is that opportunity, I think, a lot. And what you're getting at, being a little heavy on gospel, is to say, I know that this is this is rough, and God knew it too, and this is how he has come to you to be one with you. And the other problem is, if you're saying all the problems are out there and not in here, yep. mm-hmm. yeah. point to the heart. Yeah. I think just one other point on the preaching aspect of it. I, I had a member... Uh, within the first six months of my ministry, say to me, if I can predict where you're going with the sermon, then I'm tuning out. So he put me on notice right away <laughs> that's with awesome. my preaching. It was fantastic. That is great. You, if you're a lay member out there, that's what you should. Yeah. In your Christmas card to your pastor, you should write that in there. Yeah, absolutely. But, but no, what, what just struck me is preaching on Christmas, if you don't want to be predictable, preach the incarnation and, and how... <laughs> <laughs> How crazy that sounds. There's irony for you. You know, um, yeah. and, and I guess that, that kind of touches that on what great, C.S. Though. Lewis was saying, too, that sometimes we don't need to come up with the, the newest, latest whatever in our sermons. Just preach the fact that Jesus Christ came. And if you're worried about your church sign, what are you going to put on there if Jesus is not the reason for the season? Concentrate on the for you-ness and the, the sacramental quality of, of 
of this whole incarnation and Holy Communion and put on your church sign, keep the Mass in Christmas, and you may just find a few people are like, that's pretty witty. I may go to that church. <laughs> uh, if I, I'll bring back a little C.S. Lewis, and then we can see where we go and how we want to end. Um, but just two passages briefly from it. But what Lewis does in his introduction to this is really, and I would say it's something that really echoes with the honors program here at the college, and that's something Paul and I are hoping to be able to record on soon with our colleagues who teach in that, but the importance of getting at primary sources and old books. And really, that's what the scriptures are too, although they're the Viva Vox Evangelii, they're the living voice of the gospel as well. But Lewis says um, in the introduction, every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all therefore need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means old books. And we had Dr. Moldenhauer on a little bit ago, and we talked about travel and travel as a corrective when you learn another language or go another place, you not only learn more about yourself, but you learn where maybe your blind spots have been. Why do they have a word for this concept we don't have a word for? And why do they not have a word for this concept we have a word for? And in that same paragraph, he goes on, and I just want to read it because I don't want to get it wrong. And he says, We may be sure that the characteristic blindness of the 20th century, the blindness about which posterity will ask, how, but how could they have thought that, lies where we have never suspected it, and concerns something about which uh, there is untroubled agreement between Hitler and President Roosevelt, or between Mr. H.G. Wells and Karl Barth. And I, I think that's a fantastic line. Because, And I posted that on Facebook the other night, and there were people who speculated about what he meant, and one of the good guesses is maybe statism, right? We, we assume the state is, is somewhat a solution to things. But I don't care what, what he meant necessarily, if he had a certain thing in mind. But there's just certain assumptions that Roosevelt and Hitler both had about the world that they didn't even realize they had because they were just 20th century Western assumptions. Um, 2018 America, there's just certain assumptions we have, and some of them are especially good. They're true things, but some of them really miss big time some true things too. And what that Christmas account we read at the beginning does, what the scriptures do is, is they... A, affirm some of those truths that we actually have right, um, but B, they, they, they really show the blind spots. They're like the um, on your side view mirrors, those little circle things you can sometimes add sometimes so you can see a little bit more. Uh, my dad was a truck driver, so he always added those on. and um, it, it does that, being able to go back. And so Christmas, the incarnation does that too. And Athanasius did that, and Luther did that of showing where maybe some of our blind spots are, what are some things we're missing, um, what should we maybe slow down and ponder and think about that we haven't slowed down and pondered and thought about. And so I think Lewis' introduction is very helpful for that, and I think he has it there, and maybe, Paul, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because he knows a lot of his listeners or readers would be in the Western Church um, in the 20th century, um, post-Anselm, uh, you know, Roman Catholic, Anglican, or generic Protestant. And it's amazing, C.S. Lewis, really, his main home now probably is along among Protest, generic Protestants when his own yeah. sympathies were much more Anglican or Roman Catholic. Um, but I think that he especially has us in mind as those who need that corrective of reading Athanasius and, and understanding there's 
other images. There's other ways of getting to the same thing in a very biblical fashion. There's other wonderful aspects of the truth confessed um, in Athanasius that we were maybe missing out on otherwise. And I think the same is true of the scriptures and, and so many other things. So when I reread this about C.S. Lewis saying about blindness in the, in his case, the 20th century, of course, I thought of Flannery O'Connor drawing with large and startling figures because of what she perceived as the malaise of the mid-20th century. And she was right, I think. Um, I doubt that I would recommend that any pastors choose for their theme, their sermon theme for Christmas Day, following in the bleeding, stinking, mad shadow of Jesus. Um, although it might be a good thing to do. Uh, you, know, you can talk about the good, the true, and the beautiful, the good, the beautiful, and the true, but, you know, this is... My members certainly would not have expected <laughs> that, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do that next time I preach yeah. there. I wouldn't have expected it either, as a matter of fact. But there, there is this wake-up call that is necessary for every age. So, you know, one of the things positive, I think, about the times we live in is I can say the so-called enlightenment, and people will say, oh, yeah, I, I can see why it's so-called. Um, now, if you talk about um, subjectivism, that's a whole different thing. You know, I personally don't think you're right, but that's up, you're entitled to your opinion. Well, I mean, that's our problem, isn't it? Well, I think we're probably at time, and this is uh, some good food for thought. Hopefully you're listening to this, um, maybe as you're preparing uh, for your Christmas worship, or maybe uh, uh, travels to go see family. Um, maybe you can find a midnight mass somewhere, or watch Die Hard, whatever, whichever way do you want to <laughs> yeah. follow. And I will, this is the closest we're going to get to the day of Christmas with something releasing, so a merry Let the Bird Fly Christmas to you from uh, Mike and I, but also from Ben and Peter, who were working. They have these jobs where they actually have to go places and be there for a set amount of time. It's odd, but that's what they do. So Merry Christmas uh, from the podcast. But Mike, I'll let you wrap things up. Sure. So thank you uh, for listening. And we hope that you enjoy our show. Don't forget um, that we're on the 1517 Legacy Project uh, Network. And you can go visit them. And you can um, see all sorts of other podcasts there. You can donate money. And then also, uh, while you're listening here, we'd like to plug, uh, we'll just plug one thing. And that is, we have our um, Luther um, series Wade and I are doing and if you have ex extended travel here during the, the holiday season they are already um, uh, uploaded or downloaded or whatever it is posted there's at least four of them by the time this gets out maybe even five and we're going to keep that up so if you want to get to, to the early uh, life of Luther through his education becoming um, a monk you can uh, listen to those on your break and don't forget to subscribe um, to our podcast and uh, to like us on Facebook and all those other things that Wade does. Uh, so until next time, uh, have a good new year and let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up another round. I set them up. Another round, I'll set him up. Another round, one more round won't get me down.
don't care what people are thinking. I'm not drunk.